Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. 100. It's such a big number. Sherry, this is our 100th episode. Can you believe it? Uh, Hardly at all. I think 100, you know, I guess it could be a big or a small number. When I wanted to have 100 kids, that that was a lot. That was Uh, a lot more than you ever said. Well, okay, I said I wanted to have seven kids, but if I had wanted to have 100, that would be a lot. That would be insane. 100 kids is a lot. 100 diapers, not so much. I mean, we have four kids. We did 100. How many hundreds of diapers do you think we did? I didn't keep track. 100 diapers is not nearly as big a deal as 100 kids. How about how about food, since I like to eat? Uh, 100 peas, not that many. That might be like one helping. Yeah. But 100 pork chops. That's a lot. I mean, that's a lot. That's gluttonous. Yeah, that's, that's no, no small feat. I was thinking about cats, because I know how much you like cats. Oh, I don't want to be If cats. you watched 100 cat videos, that would be just like a normal Tuesday night no. for you. You make it sound like I have nothing to do. Well, you have a lot to do, but you squeeze in the cat videos, that's for sure. Little clips, maybe four. A hundred cat videos, uh, that you can you can whip through that. But a hundred cats, you're gonna have to wait until you're a widow to do the hundred cats. I won't. I don't know. I don't know. That's a lot of litter boxes. It is a lot of litter boxes. How about a hundred back massages? That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? That'd be like a hundred weeks. Yeah, I could go for that. I know one a day. No, you don't want it every day. You, you don't spread out your. I've only your ever head. had one like official back massage, so I really yeah. don't know. Yeah. 100 weeks of back massages. Good. So week. sometimes this podcast, doing this podcast and doing it with you, it feels like 100 back massages. Feels lovely, doesn't it? Yeah. And then other, <laughs> other times, I guess. other times it feels like 100 bison that are trampling us. Like last week. Last week was a hundred trampling bison. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am so excited that we've made it to a hundred. Oh, I've got another hundred. What? It's like a hundred degrees here in our office. Hundred degrees as we were in our commitment to mediocre sound quality. We do it in this small room, uh, the furnace on the back of the house that gets the west west side heat in the afternoon. Uh, but at least there's not a terrible echo, although, like I said, mediocre sound quality at best. But to celebrate our 100th episode, we have invited people that have really connected with this podcast to join us. We have uh, several, eight, about eight of our friends from the Echoes of Recovery group here joining us for this podcast. Are you excited about this idea, Sherry? Yes, I'm excited because then there will be a lot more voices. Oh, tons of voices. Uh, all the ones all the ones in my head the hundreds in my head the uh eight or nine people joining us it's going to be great uh speaking of herding cats let's let's welcome our friends from echoes of recovery um so again echoes of recovery is our group for the loved ones of alcoholics people who have experienced secondhand alcoholism firsthand and uh we 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 just they, they have um, connected with the podcast, um, raised their hand and said, yes, I want to I wanna have a support network. I want to find people in similar situations to talk with. And that's what Echoes of Recovery is all about. And we're just so blessed. It isn't part of being a part of this group that you're required to come on the podcast. Nothing could be further from the truth. We are all about you know, protecting the honesty and the vulnerability that our friends in Echoes uh, generously give to us as as part of the group, but these are people that said, yeah, you guys are celebrating this 100th episode. You've got some things you want to talk about. You'd like input from us and and we're game. We're down for it. So um, I just want to start there and say, we love, literally love these people. These are people we've gotten to know over the months and year plus and people that we legitimately love. And we're so thankful that they're here on the podcast with us. So Flow-wise, we have no idea what we're doing, but we're going to give this a shot. We're going to run through some questions and just throw them out. And um, our friends, when you feel compelled to answer, please jump in. 
and uh, we'll try to make sure that all the voices are heard and we we get around to everyone but but jump in at will what we want to talk about tonight and what we thought would be a great uh, topic for a group like this is is connection and as the loved one of an alcoholic as we all know when the alcoholic decides to get sober anyone who's in the know anyone who's in that inner circle is pulling for that alcoholic to get sober and constantly asking you know how How's Bill doing? How's sobriety going for him? Anything we can do to help? But very rarely does anybody ask, how are you doing as as the spouse of of an alcoholic? How are you doing? And so it can be very lonely to be the loved one of an alcoholic in recovery or not in recovery. And uh, so the connection is an important piece. You know, we've got our friends from Echoes on, but this is not an advertisement for Echoes. Right. Get your connection however you can. Al-Anon is a great resource and it works for a lot of people. Family and friends can be a great resource. We're going to talk about that and how that worked worked for, for these folks and for you, Sherry. Um, so Echoes is an option, but th- this isn't an hour-long advertisement for Echoes. It is, however, a, a statement to the importance of connection. So gosh, I think I've uh, spent my amount of talking for this episode. Let's let's turn it over to our friends here. The first thing I want to talk about is how was it or or did you open up to friends and family about what you were going through? Um, either when your loved one was still drinking, and for many of us, that's a very secretive time. We call it a family disease, a disease of denial, and not a lot of people know what's going on. Or perhaps in your case, it was after sobriety started. Um, but what was that opening up to friends and family like? Does anyone want to talk about their experience with that? I can. So I definitely opened up to family and friends um, in the beginning. And it was it was different because a lot of them were drinkers themselves. So I wasn't prepared for the oh, well, you know, I drink too. And like, you know, like it, it wasn't a big deal to them and they just couldn't relate or get the concept that it could be um, bad. Like, oh, he deserves that. Or he, he, he can do that if he wants. And like, yeah. He so can. like you were blowing, blowing it out of proportion, basically. It's right. not a big deal. Guys drink. Or he doesn't act that way around us. Like, well, of course not. <laughs> like, I didn't have that where he acted a fool in front of other people to make them known um, of his behaviors that was happening at home. Yeah. Yeah, that's very common. Like, the drinker doesn't act like the, the, the side that you see at home behind closed doors is totally different than the show they're putting on for their audience is kind of how I would always think of Matt as being like a performer and he was the funny guy. He was the crazy guy, the wild guy. Like, but then he would be a totally different character when he came home behind closed doors. So when you open up to people, then they're like shocked. They're like, what? He's just, he likes to drink and have a good time. He's not an alcoholic. Yeah. That sort of. Yeah. I think that's very common and a great place to start. Nikki, thanks for being brave enough to jump in there and be first. Barbara, I know you are really close with your mom. Um, has it always been that way? Um, did this, did dealing with alcoholism of your spouse, did that uh, bring you closer together? Was that part of a bonding experience or were you always that way? Uh, mom and I have been pretty close through, through most of our lives. Uh, and there, there are, you know, seasons with, with all these relationships and, um, so, so for me, uh, kind of as a, a, a contrast to what Nikki went through with my, my husband, um, there were sort of stages of the revelation of what his illness was because he sort of became sicker than we realized he, he was as far as drinking was concerned. Uh, and we thought we had the drinking under control. Um, so <laughs> we were addressing the illness and without us really being aware of the fact that he was still drinking. So mom, mom and I became very close during the, uh, 
the encephalopathy phase, the cirrhosis phase, the liver transplant phase, as scary as you can get. And those are the points at which you think that, you know, you're, you're certainly going to, you know, have uh, some reach in getting someone help with alcoholism. But that's actually really the point where things got really bad in, in our marriage and in my husband's alcoholism. And I think it, it um, the, the relationship that I had with my husband actually sort of was to the exclusion of a lot of other relationships in my life. And I've had that thought as, as that relationship has, has disappeared. You know, I've, it's been nine months since he and I divorced. And it was such a, it was, there was so much dependency in that relationship and so much uh, tied up there that I've, I've really found that I have so much more energy for other relationships. Uh, it's been, it's been great to kind of almost get to rediscover my, my family, because I feel like that those relationships had kind of gone away. So, yeah. Yeah. That's an that's, excellent point. Yeah. That's familiar. Yeah. Something. Because you're spending all your time with me and worried about me and mm-hmm. plus the secrecy too, right? The denial yeah, like of my, what's my really mom going knew on. And she had experience with it, but then there's only so much you can burden your family with it and especially your parents and their aging and you don't want them to worry and be concerned about their children and their grandchildren. So you do kind of shut yourself off away from some people because you don't, you know, you don't want to have to share so much. Hey, Haley, you've been through this or you're going through this for a second time now. And I'm curious because you know, your family, your support network, your friends knew of your first uh, relationship with your first husband who suffered from alcoholism. What was it, what's it like going through it a second time? Do you reach out more? Do you reach out less? I I know that you've battled, um, you know, and I, and we tell you all the time, there's zillions of us alcoholics out there. There's nothing to be ashamed of for, for having this happen twice, but, but I know you battle that. It, does that affect your relationships at all? Um, I think honestly, I take the same approach that I took the first time with the exception that the difference was a lot of, with my first husband, a lot of our friends, um, a lot of our friends were joint friends. So all of the activities that we did with them, the guys were always drinking. So anytime I would bring it up, it was like, oh, just leave, just leave him alone. He's fine. He's not you know, he's not going crazy. He's not doing anything ridiculous, but they didn't see the stuff at home. And so I did say some stuff to his family, but got the, um, oh, well, he's drinking because of you. Or, you know, I kind of battled that a lot with his family. And so I felt kind of, um, I didn't feel like I had anyone to reach out to. Um, And I was very conscientious of not sharing with my family because I didn't want there to be judgment. I wanted the relationship to work. So I didn't want to damage that. And I didn't want to damage that even with my friends that didn't know what was going on. I guess part of it was probably shame. Um, And that definitely carries in this time because it's a second time. It's like, gosh, how, how could you possibly be in the same situation again? Um, I think the difference for me is that my current husband's family is fully aware of everything that's going on and they are my support system in my rock. And I didn't have any of that before. And um, well, and then the difference is, is that I've also reached out to this group and have a new support system. And that's been really important for me in my recovery and trying to figure out um, how to, how to move forward. Yeah, and we're so glad that you have. It's it's been great getting to know you. How about how about this? Has anyone reached out to either family or friends and found that while these are people that love you and care about you, they just don't have experience with addiction or alcoholism, and they're frankly not all that useful because their their advice comes from a a place of innocence and and ignorance. I don't mean that in the mean way you can say ignorant, but they don't know any better, so they're they're not terribly helpful. Have any of you experienced that? I'll go again. (laughs) Um, I, I will say with even just people after going through my first divorce, and I have been a little bit vulnerable trying to share like some of the impact that that has had. And people just don't get it because drinking is such a common place. Um, people will be like, gosh, it's been a rough day. I need to have a drink. And, and because it's such a pervasive part of our culture, it's really hard for people to understand what it's like to 
live with an alcoholic or what that means. And, and I think some of it is maybe they worry about if they're drinking too much. I don't know it, but I have definitely experienced that where they just don't get it. Um, or they kind of just brush it under the rug. Well, I've had it too, where they will just push you to leave the person. They want you to leave your spouse because why, why stay with him if it's so awful? And it's like, they just don't get it from that perspective that we love them. We want them to get better. We want them to, we want our marriage to work. It's not that we are just here to complain. Like we want them to be better. And if they're not through that situation, they just don't understand what that means. Well, Kim, I know that you didn't have experience um, growing up with the abuse and alcoholism where a lot of us that are married to alcoholics um, or alcoholics in recovery did grow up around alcohol where it was used and abused. And I know your upbringing was a bit different. How did your parents react to you're telling them of your situation? Um, I think my parents were just kind of, you know, I didn't overshare the information. I didn't want them to be judgmental of what I was going through because they have not been through it themselves. Um, so I kind of picked and choosed what I told them until we got into really the recovery aspect of it. And they were very supportive. They definitely, you know, they love my husband and they want what's best for him. Um, so they, I think they just tried to pour themselves into helping any way that they could. Jessica, I think one of the similarities between your situation and Sherry and I, our situation, is that your, your husband, much like me, wanted to keep this a secret. And I think I got this right. You wanted to keep this a secret and you you honored that as best, as best you could for as long as you could. And that makes it a really private, scary, um, you know, you don't have a support network, basically. What, what was that like, um, kind of honoring him and trying not to, to drag him into a, a public space with your friends um, while you were in desperate need of help? Uh, it made me feel crazy because I could see and was living a life that was going one way and people on the outside heard and saw something else completely. So, I mean, he's, he's very successful. So you wouldn't know by looking at him that he was a daily drinker. Um, and you wouldn't know how much he drank by looking at his success in our family. And so that just made me feel super alone. And also, um, he was, he would get very angry when we would, when I would try to talk to him about it because he was in such denial and he would say, I was labeling him and that it was my problem that I had the problem with alcohol, that I had some idea about it. That was, you know, very narrow that, you know, he was, it was the thing that relaxed him and made him feel better and look at how successful he was and how much he had done for our family, which was all true. He has been extremely successful and has done amazing things for our family. But he was saying that was the one thing he needed to do this. And so that put me in this really weird position of, well, what if that's true? What if that is the one thing that helps him? And what if it is me? And, um, and when you can't talk to anybody about it, because I knew he would be furious at me because it would be me labeling him and, and insulting him to other people, um, I, I couldn't get proof that I was right. And it was only when things got really bad. Um, and I finally just said, I didn't care what he thought. I was going to talk to people because I needed help. I, um, that I started hearing stories from other people that were so similar to my own that I was like, oh my God, I'm not crazy. I'm right. Um, I started doing all kinds of research, um, reading books. And I was like, the things that I saw that I thought were signs that he was chemically dependent were true. He was chemically dependent. I was right. Like, it was only once I started talking to people and sharing, and it was scary. I mean, like, I can remember I went, I started going to Al-Anon years ago before I came here and just, be, I was just shaking in the room, just shaking. I was so scared that someone would see me, would tell him, um, but just hearing other people's stories and talking to other people was incredibly, incredibly um, helpful for me and healing for me. That's, that's what this is all about. That's why this connection is so important. Just, we talk all the time, Sherry, about 
uh, people listening to their instincts and pushing away those insecurities because that gaslighting, the, the thing that we as alcoholics do to protect ourselves and to protect our disease and protect our ability to drink is we're not doing it to be mean, but we are absolutely trying to make you feel crazy just as Jessica just described so that we can keep drinking. Because if we, if we admit that the people that love us are, and that know what's going on, if we admit that they're right, then we have to stop. And when we're not ready to do that, we'll do anything, including trying to make our, our, you know, dearest relations feel like they're crazy. Thanks so much for sharing that, Jessica. Karen, the, the next thing I want to talk a little bit about is understanding the need that we need healing. You know, when, when the alcoholic finally admits, yes, I'm an alcoholic, I mean, we, we throw everything at that. 30-day inpatient recovery, uh, uh, all kinds of, do, do 100 AA meetings in 100 days, um, all kinds of other programs, including our Shout Sobriety Program. There's all kinds of resources out there for the alcoholic. And frankly, it's not one size fits all. It doesn't work if you work it. Um, there are different programs that are a, a, the right fit for different people and lots of opportunities out there for healing. But what I think a lot of people don't understand about this disease, people that are involved in it, and certainly people on the outside who have never experienced it, is that the loved ones and the, the, the spouses, the kids, anyone who's close in relation to the alcoholic that person needs and deserves healing as well. And Karen, you've come a long way um, in <laughs> your recovery. And we're, we're just so impressed with you and proud of you. Um, you're, you're largely like a mentor um, yeah, because of all that you've been through. What was it like at the beginning though? Did you know that you needed healing right away? Or like, how did you figure out that it wasn't just about getting your husband sober, but you needed something too? I think the focus just goes to the alcoholic at first. And when he finally admitted he was an alcoholic and I made sure, you know, that he was in, he was in for 28 days. And I, I immediately called a therapist for me because I, the kids, my kids are adults. They were, they had all been involved by his crazy drinking phone calls. And so everybody was involved in the family. And the, that was, I had a friend who referred me to this therapist and she was amazing. And through her, I, since I am an adult child of an alcoholic, I joined that group and codependence anonymous. And since I tend to process verbally, I needed a lot of people to talk to, <laughs> but some people just simply are not safe to talk to because you feel bad enough and it's hard enough to reach out and you know, people love the alcoholic too. They don't want to hear bad stuff. They don't really want to know. A lot of people really don't want to know. But then on the other hand, some people are very surprising that will be there for you. And I think you just have to learn, you know, you put your toe in the water with people and, and you can tell. But I, and I did have one friend where if I couldn't sleep, I could call her at one o'clock in the morning when things were the worst and she would pick up the phone and be supportive of me. I don't know what I would have done without her. When we'd been friends for um, 25 years and she'd had family stuff go on herself. And so she was just great. So I just decided that I wanted, I was gonna work on me because I had had too much alcoholism in my life and I wanted to get me better and I wanted to make whatever possible difference I could for my children, even though they're grown. You know, it's a generational disease. It continues a lot of times. And so I just got myself the support and it's just been amazing. And I loved Echoes, which was different because in my other groups, we don't um, respond when someone else shares. And sometimes it's good to respond. And I love the writing that we do. Well, we love having you. Karen actually hits on a really good point. I, I, I tried some of the more traditional 12-step programs. And when you're first, when you're first coming out uh, as, you know, a, a, a spouse of an alcoholic, you're desperate for feedback. So sitting in a room full of people who will not say anything to you 
is worse than hell. Uh, forgive me for anyone who's listening who, who's been helped by a 12-step program. It was a uniquely hellish experience for me and echoes really, I mean, well, I had gone, I'd gone through this phase with, with uh, I mean, I haven't ever even been able to address this with my husband. We're divorced, he's still drinking. So that's just a closed door for me. This group, this group was life or, I mean, this was how I, I stayed alive. I, I, I desperately needed to talk about what had happened to me. I think that because we're kind of, we become people pleasers, we are also, we want some kind of affirmation that we're not invisible. We've been invisible for a long time. And so to have someone say to me, oh, I really resonate with that, or the same thing happened to me was just great in a conversation, you know, and it's not that you can't talk, you can talk after the group and those groups have helped me, but this has helped me in a different way where I feel like I'm seen and I'm heard in the moment. And that's a different thing. I wish this was TV instead of radio because <laughs> when Barbara and Karen were talking, they were all <laughs> nodding heads going on on our Zoom screens. Well, yeah, again, we're not trying to like make this an Echoes advertisement, but when Matt and I were talking about this group, one of the things that had happened in his, I guess, what, a year and a half into your sobriety or a year into your sobriety, sometimes that was mass email. Oh, yeah. And one year. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of like this woman that I knew through our kids school, like, you know, we had been friends, but you know, we, we had shared intimately, but never anything like this. And she was like, hey, can I meet you for coffee? And there were a couple of people that reached out, just was really nice, wanted to know how things were, wanted to make sure the kids were okay, wanted to make sure I was okay. You know, some people that had support, but then when, and we've had her on our podcast before Tracy, and she said, I'm living a parallel life. Like, you know, I'm living the same thing. Your husband is in recovery. Mine is not yet in recovery. It just that having that um, way to commiserate and converse and when she's like, oh, that's a really tough day. And I know what she means and she doesn't have to explain. Or I could say, wow, this is a really tough day or it was a bad experience. What just happened? And, you know, she didn't have to hear the details. And I loved having somebody that just could understand. And so when we were thinking about this group and, and she actually had told us a bit about her Al-Anon experience. And I know you can meet up afterwards and you can make connections. It's just much harder. That's when I was like, I really feel like we need to have this like connection where we can share because you're right. You do need feedback. You do need to hear, oh, I tried that, you know, and it worked for me or wow, that's really brave of you to, to try that. Or I'm, you know, wow, we know what you're saying. Cause I just, I didn't want to just say my piece and then be done. I, I needed that friendship almost that yeah, and nobody should have to go through, through this alone on either side of it as, as the drinker or the loved one. Nobody should have to go through this alone. And Susie, you graciously shared with us um, a piece that you wrote during one of the Echoes of Recovery uh, writing sessions that we do. Um, and it was all about that, that feeling alone in a crowd, crowded room full of people, the loneliness that it is to be married to an alcoholic. Can, can you talk a little bit more? The, the, the piece was beautiful. We encourage yeah. our listeners to check it out on our Sober and Unashamed blog. It's called Alone in a Crowd, Alone in the Crowd. Um, but can you talk a little bit more about that and what the transition is like from when you're just holding this secret tight and you're the only one that knows compared to when you find a support network and you start sharing with people that have gone through something similar? Sure. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I'm listening to everyone talking about their experiences, just brought up a lot of those same thoughts and feelings uh, of, of that, because there was an extended period of time where I didn't talk to anyone about what was happening in our home. Um, and probably an extended period of time where I kind of had my own denial going on that I, I wasn't even believing that this was happening in our home. Um, but things kind of came to a head with um, my husband's health and he ended up in the hospital on two separate occasions. And that kind of let the cat out of the bag, so to, the, so to speak. Um, 
and I was forced in a sense to tell people what was happening. And um, it, it was like a huge weight lifted off of me when I finally was able to talk about it with people. And it's, it's been, it's been both a slow and a fast thing for me um, throughout this. There, there, there are still people in our lives that have no idea what has happened with us. Um, and, and that's partly because out of respect for my husband, because he also didn't really want a lot of people knowing he doesn't like to feel judged. He doesn't like to feel like, um, like people are looking down on him or, or our family, you know, or pitying us or whatever. And so, um, there are still plenty of people out there that don't know, but because of his health, I was kind of forced into at least sharing with our families and um, and a few very close friends who who know and it really it really did just kind of lift a weight off of me because I felt like I was so under this rock of heaviness that I couldn't get out from under and um, and it's it, it it's very isolating when you when you can't talk about it when you can't share with others. Um, and now that I have people, uh, it's, it's amazing to be able to just go and say, okay, this is what's happening right now. Um, it's one of the reasons I love echoes as well, because I have a, a place mainly where people understand because we, I don't have alcoholism in my family, nor does, is there really a history in my husband's family. And so people didn't, and our, and our families didn't really understand what, it, what that means, um, I have one good friend who's also has an alcoholic husband who I've been able to kind of commiserate with, which has been really great. Um, but having a place like Echo is where I can just let loose and at the same time be a be a support for others. That's been huge for me too to to be able to to say I hear you, I feel I feel what you're feeling, I'm with you. That's I think that's a beautiful thing. So well, that's what it's all about being able to to give and receive. It's it's a um, I know, I know it's a great feeling for us. Um, and I know you guys share that. It's great having a group like this. Suzanne, um, I'm curious, one of the things that we talk a lot about is how important it is to blame the alcohol and not to blame the person that consumed or is still consuming the alcohol. This really is a disease. Um, this isn't just a defective human being. Can you talk a little bit about that? What is that like in your relationship to say, okay, um, this, this is a sickness and the human that's involved in it is suffering and we wish him the best. Um, and I'm not necessarily mad at him. I'm mad at this disease. Does that, does that work for you? Does that resonate for you? Um, it does now <laughs> since being part of echoes, I think helped to bring that to the forefront that I, that I spent decades of just being angry at him as opposed to the alcohol. Oh, it takes a huge weight off, I think, of, of me, of him, of the relationship when you can put it in the perspective of we all picked up alcohol at some point in our lives and some have had an issue with it, some haven't. So in reality, it makes sense that it is such a huge societal problem and some of us carry the burden or the alcoholics carry such a much larger piece of the burden. But I think in the early stages of recovering ourselves um, or before we even start recovery, it does, it becomes such a revolving um, door of just constantly finding the person which doesn't do much help in terms of getting them to get on the road to recovery because of the shame that just it brings. And once I finally started to say, I, you know, it's the alcohol, you know, don't be so hard on yourself. You know, this is an issue that is bigger than both of us. It, it, and you could see that I started to change and my recovery was starting to work on me is what I think started to get him on the ball. And it's been a couple, actually, it's only been a couple of weeks of sobriety for him, which has been pretty good. He went much longer before a couple of years back, he went three to four years, but then he's been on drinking now for quite some time. But 
Yeah, when the perspective changes in terms of the blame, it does help, especially with my own recovery. Yeah. Well, and that's what this is all about, whether it's echoes or, or any way that you find support. <laughs> it's, it's about recognizing that, that you need help. It's not just about trying to fix this other human. And that's something that I've been super impressed with you for months now, Suzanne. You, you're always focused on, this is what I'm doing to work on me. I understand that whatever's going on on the other side of the street, I'm wishing him luck. Um, I hope that goes well, but I got to focus on me. Such a difficult thing to come to grips with, but something that you do very well. Um, okay, this one's a little bit of a toughie, and I'm just going to throw it out to and, and see who would like to jump in and, and give your experience. Um, what is it like to try to keep from engaging with the drinker when they're drinking? Um, it's so easy to get sucked in. God, Sherry and I know how easy it is because we did it for literally decades um, where the alcohol would put me in a nasty mood and I'd start hurling insults and, and Sherry would hurl them back as a defense mechanism because we didn't know any better. But can, can anyone speak to um, you know, the idea of as part of your own recovery, you've got to stop from engaging um, when the alcoholic behavior is coming out and just remove yourself from the situation? For myself, um, what I got from a guest speaker actually that you have had on your previous podcast um, is separating out your loved one or your spouse from the addict. So that was a huge turning point for me is when my husband was drinking, looking at him not as my husband, but as an addict and someone that I didn't want to engage with because it's not going to go anywhere nothing productive is going to come out of a conversation or any point that I'm trying to get across. So the best thing that I learned for myself is to walk away, to leave the house, um, go to a safe spot, listen to music, do something for me rather than engaging with that, with that addict person. That is not my spouse at that time. Yeah. Yeah. That's great advice. Anybody else? Well, I mean, I did that for years. Um, but I will tell you that it's complicated when you live with young children and your spouse is drinking in the middle of the living room. And, um, so, you know, it meant that for the most part I did bedtime. Um, and I knew that there was a, a pattern that was going to occur that where he would drink a certain amount and then eventually fall asleep. So if we could just get through the part where he was drinking and still awake to the part where he was asleep, then we were pretty free free to move about, <laughs> move about the cabin, <laughs> um, you know, but, but prior to that, you know, you just never knew what was going to make him mad or irritated or, you know, sometimes you'd be super fun. You never knew. And it was just that in-between phase where you're like, Hey, um, as the kids got older and were doing their own thing, I didn't have to do a bedtime so much anymore. It was my time to go in the back and that's when I got my subscription to BritBox TV and I dove really hard into everything British <laughs> and murder mystery wise. And that was my time. <laughs> um, but yeah, it, it's, it's complicated when you can't just leave mm -hmm. the yeah. house. I could piggyback on that. I think that my husband is very volatile and so I don't know what I'm going to get. And I struggle to detach when he's poking at me because then I'm just like angry that he's intoxicated again. And so it takes a lot of energy for me, especially if I've had a rough day, like I have to be very intentional to walk away and to try to find a different space in the house where he's not so that I am not engaging and having children does complicate that a lot. And then when he's in a loving mood, it's hard to not want that while knowing that I need to detach from him because it's almost like rewarding the behavior like that he's drinking. So it's really hard to navigate. I, I think I, I, I can't tell if I was just genuinely terrible at not engaging or if that my now ex was just never not intoxicated. I mean, so I really, there was no point at which I could address anything and that, and that just, that's really an unforgiving situation to find yourself in. Like you never have any recourse for conversation. And even as, as you know, Matt, and you've discussed, there's, there's a wiring issue when you're, you don't have to be, you know, 
six vodka tonics in to be a drunk, you know, to be effectively drunk. Your whole mentality is, is a very different mentality if that's the way you're abusing alcohol. So there really isn't, there really isn't a ton of respite to find a place to engage. So I, I think, I think that's some, sometimes I, I, I acknowledge that I had a lot of anger that I didn't, I didn't dispose of effectively. And I probably didn't seek out groups in a, a way that would have helped me at an earlier phase, but I don't think that it ultimately would have changed the results of, of what happened to me in the marriage. You, you know, when we talk about um, engaging and you, you talk about not being able to find the opportunity to, to engage Barbara, I, I want our listeners to understand this, this is the same Barbara that of the, t- the two regular writers on our Sober and Unashamed blog, this is the, the better of the two. Um, this is, um, this is <laughs> the same Barbara. Good, uh, I thought I was a good writer until I met Barbara. Yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> you, 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 and she's blushing. I again wish this was TV instead of radio so you could see how red lots her face is. But lots of nodding heads <laughs> agree. Um, but Barbara, one of the things that you've written about is sitting next to him, um, watching his TV shows and, and doing it because you felt, I, I don't know, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but was it a duty or this is how I can be a loving spouse by being here and realizing he was drifting off and detaching and separating from you. And, it, you know, you eventually started going off and doing your own thing, right? And and pulling away from that toxic situation. But I think that's a, a, a trap that many, many, many people find themselves in where they're just locked in this routine and, and don't know what to do about it. Can you, can you share a little bit about that, Barbara? The I, TV was just an evil presence in our house after, after a while. TV and alcohol went together hand in hand because they're both extremely escapist and not very good for mentality. Uh, and, and what happened to me is I, I actually, it, it was the only time I had to be with him. The, the, only, the, only, the only place you could find to be next to him was sitting on the couch in front of the TV. And what eventually happened, I mean, I, I, I had no interest in what he was even watching. What I eventually did is I, I got my own small screen, my own phone, and would be on my phone while we, while we were watching something that we'd seen possibly 12 times already. And he would become incensed. This was an affront to him. <laughs> I, was, I, was not, I was not paying attention to the thing that we'd seen 12 times already. And it was, it was, I was not participating effectively. And I just, I, I didn't know how to do it. And, you know, I guess, I guess there's some idea that there's a different love language for, for certain people and that a, a, a popular way for men to be together and to bond is to face the same direction and not be looking at each other and not be addressing each other. And that that is a, supposed to be a bonding event but it didn't work for me. I can understand that too. I think is that you, you want to be with your loved one, even though they're not really even there. And it's was like just trying to connect and finding a time when they were available. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And so you're lonely anyway, and you want to connect with your spouse, but he's emotionally gone. And my situation with the, the, the drinking, mine, mine became just, it was all hidden and sneaky and just crazy rantings. And I would try to walk away, but that wasn't always, always possible either. Yeah, sometimes that is hard to try to walk away and escape them. But like we had a family room in our basement and that's where Matt liked, this was kind of where we had the TV and that's where you would like to go and I always found especially it, especially on those Sunday evenings. Yeah, and I real found depressed. it cold and depressing, and and no sun. And I would always call the you know the main level topside. So I was like, I'm gonna stay topside. But you'd always like holler down, you know, like come here, come here. And uh, I just you know it used to be the kids' playroom, and then it just became this like ugh, gross place that I like moved even a lot of the toys upstairs because I was like, I don't even want the kids down there like playing in the same room that you watch tv and drink and also it's close to the beer refrigerator so i'm sure or your kegerator yeah but yeah it was that was hard to disengage though when you weren't even you know 
coherent of your hollering in to get me down there to watch something. And, See, yeah. and I had it slightly different because I didn't always know he was drinking either. And I knew something was up, but he would disappear from us. And then I'd get like, you know, because we have a small child at home, I didn't want to raise my voice or get in his face or have the argument. So we did a lot of angry texting. <laughs> I mean, it was, and I know Matt will tell me it's like the worst thing ever, but like, that was the way we communicated for years to not involve the kid or to get her to hear it all because we didn't have a place where we could just step out and talk about it and leave her to herself, you know? So there was a lot of engaging. It was just through text. I'm glad you brought up the angry texting, Nikki, because literally <laughs> when Sherry was just saying that I would holler from one floor to the other to her, I thought, oh, that reminds me of Nikki and the angry texting. Now, <laughs> there's a, there's probably a good 15 years between us age-wise, which is probably, there, there is some generation generationality to uh, how we communicate. Me, like, come downstairs, Anita. Like, that was the voice I put. But you had texted me a couple times. Yeah. But, Did I really? Yeah. Mm. But you also had a flip phone. I must have been drunk because yeah, it's hard to text with the flip phone. Especially if you're drunk. Yeah. That doesn't doesn't go particularly well. Yeah, well, that's another form of like that would be hard to like try to disengage from because you have your phone with you nowadays all the time, right? And you're like, oh, now I'm just getting a beep, beep, beep. But then even if you're not reading them, I'm sure there's a level of anxiety and frustration and anger that's building as the, you know, notification beings are coming through. Wow. We all know that, you know, you can't change people, but what can you do? Susie, can, can you address that question? What, what is it like to know that no matter what you try, you know, you can't talk this person or convince this per person or threaten this person into sobriety, but what can you do for yourself? What, what options are available? Well, number one, I would say find a community. I mean, that's what this whole thing is about, right? Uh, but that, that is, I think personally, it's key is, is having people that you can, can talk to, can commiserate with, can share and, um, complain to whatever when, when the need arises, right? Um, and, and then also just for um, getting feedback. So you can say, okay, people, this is what's going on. This is what I'm thinking about doing. Am I crazy? And, you know, and then have that feedback as well. I think that that was super important. Um, and, and besides just that, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of, of not just having groups like this, but then making sure that you have like a professional you can talk to. Um, I've been in therapy basically since went to um, rehab and that's been huge for me. So, um, and, and lots and lots of self-care, just making sure that I'm taking care of me, whatever that looks like for it, each individual person. You know, I think that's super, super important. Yeah, Fo focusing on yourself in whatever way. So let's talk a little bit about that. What does that mean? Does anyone want to jump in and, and tell us what recovery, discovery, self-care, what that looks like for you? Do you have a routine? Do you have something that you try to um, do every now and again uh, on a daily basis? Um, I, I appreciate very much, Susie, that you talked about therapy. Sherry and I are big therapy fans um, and think that in addition to um, you know, a community like this, therapy, is a, that's a great combination. But what, what do you all do for self-care? I think it's been different depending on where I've been at in my recovery. Um, in the beginning, when things, when my husband's drinking escalated to the point that he needed to be hospitalized and then go to rehab, I was so traumatized that going and getting a massage would not have been helpful. Mm. Like my self-care was finding a group of people that I could talk to and talk in detail about what had just happened to me. Um, not talking generalizations. Um, I also needed a ton of information. Like I needed resources. I needed books to read. I needed articles. I needed to read about other people's experiences. 
Um, I was like, I could not get enough information. I, I kept reading and reading and reading because I, I found that now that I have, I can step back, it's been a long, it's been almost a year since my husband went to rehab. Um, I, with this view, I can see that I've gone through three really distinct phases and needed different things in them. I first needed to confirm that what I thought was happening was happening, that he was an alcoholic, that it, I wasn't wrong. I wasn't crazy. And I needed to know what is the definition of an alcoholic? What are the stages of alcoholism so that I could say, yes, I've seen it all and, and I'm not crazy. And then I needed validation that what I went through was really traumatic because once they get into rehab, as other people have mentioned, it becomes about them and their health and their recovery. And I was totally messed up too, because that was, I had had to hold everything together while the wheels completely came off at home. And so I needed um, validation that what I had gone through was terrible and that there was a reason I felt so crappy and that other people had been through it too. And so I didn't feel alone. And then once I got through those two things, I could then start to look back and say, okay, how did I get here? What are maybe the patterns and practices I have that aren't that healthy and that maybe I could start looking at changing going forward, but I couldn't even get to that place without feeling like I wasn't crazy and I wasn't alone. So I needed different things at different points. Right. I identify so much with that researching. I think that was a trauma response for me too. It's like I could just figure everything out ahead of time then I'd know what the next thing was going to be. So I was researching, researching, researching. And I think that for me too, I didn't even know how much trauma I had stuffed. So when I went to therapy and started doing that and I could work on my own healing because being the strong one, you're stuffing a lot in to keep on going because somebody else is going downhill and you're doing handling everything. So I did a lot of emotional work on me too. In a daily practice now though, back to our question, swimming, meditating, writing, reading, um, just things that are good for me, you know, just putting myself first. So it is stages of healing, I think, like she was saying, I agree. You, you say that it's, so casually, Karen, putting yourself first, but I think that's a lot harder to do um, than, than we realize at this point um, when, when you're well into recovery and well into your healing, it's really hard to put yourself first. Um, when you're in an alcoholic relationship, the, the yeah, the gaslighting and narcissism, borderline narcissism, whatever you want to call it, um, makes it almost impossible. So that's a really good point. Huge to put myself first. The first therapy thing, I didn't even know what I wanted. <laughs> uh, I really love the the talking about the stages because I, I recently got ambushed by my therapist. I love my therapist. She is actually our former marriage counselor. Uh, wow. which, which seems kind of almost a little bit of a cosmic joke. She actually has some excellent information that she can help me with <laughs> that I think she, you know, she's extremely useful as a therapist knowing what she knows about the marriage that I went through. Um, but she reminded me of, uh, I, I, I've been sort of mired in, you know, depression lately. And she conveniently reminded me of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's, you know, five stages of grief. Yeah. And I was astonished. I was floored. I'd completely forgotten that those things even existed. And as I sort of went through and looked at my own stages of, of recovery, I, I'd been I'd done so much denial and anger prior to, to connecting with, with uh, echoes of recovery. But um, the bargaining phase, you always sort of think of it as, I'll do anything to not be in this situation or something like that. You know what I mean? But actually one of the, if you unpack bargaining, it's things like telling your story. And I had no idea that was one of the features of bargaining. And that, and, and that really was so key for, for me unlocking, <laughs> starting to move along those, those phases, getting out of the denial and anger loop that I'd been in. Well, I could piggyback off Karen and say, I read and I wrote a lot, but I just this year didn't really know what self-care was about until um, around my birthday, for my birthday, my mother gifted me a hotel room. And I held up the marriage, the, you know, I'm, I'm a mother. So like I did so many tasks for so long that I didn't realize how exhausted I was. And the hotel room by myself was the best thing I could have done for me this year. And I have goals to do it at least twice a year because I feel like everybody needs that alone time to not be anybody but themselves for just 
a day, at least a night to just have that time for yourself to just decompress and not have to worry or think about anything. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Thank you, Nikki. Suzanne, um, I, I, I wonder if you, because you've done, you've done a lot of them with us. You've been with us for months and we've loved every minute of it. Would you talk a little bit about what the writing that we do in Echoes of Recovery, how that helps with your process? We, we for, for the listeners who don't know, we send out writing prompts to everyone in the group and ask them to do some writing. And then we get together on video calls and we share what we've written. What is, how is that process different than just talking for you? And, and you know, what has it been like as part of your recovery? Well, for me, it's something I, when I was at the early stages of realizing there was problems, um, as my son is also in recovery now for, and he lives with us with, for drugs and alcohol. Um, that was, I had no one to talk to. So the writing was my time to, it was so cathartic. I could get it all out on paper. I didn't have to tell anybody, but I didn't have to carry that with me for another day. At least it was all there. Um, and when you, when I started last year in the group um, and you did that, it was, I, I kind of had gotten away from my writing and I, and I could see how helpful the writing was for me in the past that the fact that I was able to start to do it again. Um, it is so it, for me, and I, I really think in general, and a lot of people can't do it. And I can understand why, because sometimes you're so disconnected from your feelings that it, when you start to put it down, it just becomes, it's, it's powerful and it's real and you kind of have to own it and feel it and and then you have to process it. And it is just such, I can't say it's easy all the time, but it's just such something that I wish I could do on a daily basis, but it really is a good piece in recovery. I, I think anyone that's able to, to write, it doesn't even, and like you said, it doesn't matter what you're writing about. It could even be kind of even off what you're saying, as long as you just keep writing and writing and it's just, the ball starts flowing. So it's, I love, love that it's part of the group every other week. I mean, some weeks it comes up, I'm like, oh, <laughs> I gotta do homework. But, um, you know, it's even the seven minute writing is great when you do that. It, then we don't have homework, but um, so, so important in, in the process, I think, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. Writing obviously has been really therapeutic for me. And I, I think it's, I really think it's a game changer, whether it's writing, in a group like this, which is, I think, I think that's where it's at, frankly. Um, but even journaling, even if you haven't found your tribe yet, um, just putting pen to paper, it, we go deeper when we write than when we, when we uh, just talk about things. Um, Kim, what, why is it important to speak out? And when I say speak out, I'm not talking about to the general public, but why is it important to find a group, to find some people that can be of support to you and to communicate about something like this? What has, what has opening up meant to you? For me, opening up, I think, as others have stated before, is not feeling alone. I remember when we were really in the thick of it, of active addiction, literally laying on the floor, saying out loud, I feel so alone as I'm in a house with my children and my husband who was passed out drunk upstairs. Um, and then finding this group and finding people that have been through the same thing as me and know what that alone feeling feels like and that you don't have to be alone and that you have these people that you can open up to, people that you can now call your friends and you can call when you're going through those tough times and they know exactly Sometimes they don't even have to say anything. They can just be there and listen to you because they understand it. Um, that's been life-changing for me. I don't know why this is so important to me, but whenever people in our group get together, because geographically we're spread all over the country primarily, but I mean, even we've even got someone in Europe and, and, and beyond. And, um, but whenever it, 
we get together and when I say we get together, whenever you guys get together, especially when it's a surprise and I don't know what's going to happen. And then I see a picture of people from literally different States that have, have found a way to work together. Um, God, that just does my, my heart good. Um, and you've, you've been in one of those pictures. You got together with one of our friends in echoes. Um, yes, she lives in, kind of- yeah, she lived in New York and I'm in Boston and we met in Connecticut and, it was the first time we met each other in person and it felt like we've been best friends for years and we just sat and talked and shared our stories and it was, it was great. And that must've just, I don't even really know how it developed, but I'm assuming you realized how much you had in common started conversing outside of the group and, and decided to get together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We actually met um, on a different group and I got her to come over to this group and we realized we weren't that far from each other and knew we had to meet in person. Yeah, that's great. I'm so glad you did that, Kim. Um, okay, I'm gonna throw one out. If What have we missed in this discussion? What advice do you have for those that are coming behind you? Um, what, what is important for our listeners to hear when they're in that position, when they're, when they're in it? As, as another member of our group, Jane, always says, when they're in it and, and they don't know what the right next steps are, what advice do you have? Anyone want to jump on on that? that? That we're there for them and that they'll know when they know. And we're here. We've got their back. That kind of just, I see you. I hear you. I understand. Um, and then maybe share our experience that worked for us, which doesn't necessarily mean it will work for them. But just just to listen and be seen is huge, I think. And to yeah. rebuild, to help them rebuild their trust in themselves, because it's been eroded so much by manipulation and gaslighting. I'm really glad you said the words, you'll know when you know. On this video call, we have people who have a loved one who is trying to get sober. We have people on this call whose loved one is actively drinking. We have people who have gone through divorce from their, their alcoholic loved one. And we have people whose loved one is in long-term sobriety. And yet there's still so much in common and there's so much connection and communication and understanding and empathy that can take place. And that piece about, you know, when you'll know, is is so important it's so important for people who are struggling to make hard decisions to get that kind of comfort that listen you've got to make the right moves you've got to work on yourself you've got to detach you've got to set your boundaries but when it comes to making a really hard decision you don't have to rush that you'll know when it's when it's right for that to happen um so i'm glad you brought that up karen what what else what else are we missing what advice do we have for those that might be listening and in a tough place I would say follow your intuition that you need to listen to. If you think that they're, they have a problem, they probably have a problem. And um, the other thing is you need support and you do need people to talk to. And it doesn't matter what works for you. If it works for you, do it. And I would say that not everything works for you the first time you try it. And you might need to try a few different things before you find the thing that's the right match for you and don't give up. Because when you do find that the thing that works for you, it is incredibly healing. And along the way, you're still going to hear things from people that make you feel less crazy than you feel without hearing from other people. (laughs) Oh, absolutely, Jessica. I was just going to add to find the support and just know that you don't have to rush those decisions. And if you're in it, detach and focus on you. Because find a support just so you understand what detachment means and that you know how to detach and that it's not mean. It may seem mean, but it's loving in a loving way because you just need you need that time for you to heal yourself because you need to heal as well. And it's not just about the alcoholic. It is about you and your recovery from that as well. I'd say be gentle with yourself, which we're not very good at. I think initially not everything is emergency and that you're ready when you're ready for whatever it is. And that, that your healing is not going to be rushed for someone else's time clock. You know, you got to take good care of you because you're the main character in your own life. (laughs) 
I love that piece about being gentle with yourself because even, you know, years into mass recovery, there's lots of mistakes that can still happen. And as you know, in episode 99, like we still like have issues and problems, but I think that sometimes there's just too much of harsh judgment that we have or too harsh of expectations that we put on ourselves. Like, oh, we should be better by now. And it's, it's, you know, it's a timeline that is on your own recovery. And if you make mistakes or you feel like you're backsliding or you feel like, you know, you've been insensitive, you know, to your, to your partner and, and it was undeserving, you can apologize. It doesn't need to be a big blow up. So I like that being gentle on yourself. Yeah. And, and you deserve recovery. Um, no matter where you are in this process, if you've been impacted by an alcoholic, you deserve and need recovery to, to live a full, healthy, happy life. I firmly believe that. And I want to say to, to all of our guests that have joined us today, you know, this podcast started out for, for many of you, most of you, maybe all of you as something that you were able to connect to as kind of a first point of contact. But what this podcast has turned into for Sherry and I is our ability to connect back to you and let you guys are inspirations to us. And that's, I'm, this is not just lip service. We get to know you and the things that are uh, issues for you and concerns for you and challenges for you are the things that Sherry and I then go back and talk about to each other and then eventually talk about on the podcast. So this is like a living, breathing organism you hopefully getting something from this group and from us, but us absolutely feeding off of you guys. You guys are like a never ending supply, a hundred pork chops. That's what we should <laughs> rename the group from echoes of recovery to a hundred pork chops. Can we do that for the next hundred episodes? No, no. Okay. Well, thank you all so much for being here. Absolutely love this conversation. Um, and thanks for celebrating the century mark with us. We love you all. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.